Knoxville family. Uh, this is Charlie. Just wanted to take a minute to introduce my very good friend, Aaron Loy, who you will hear uh, in this recording. Aaron is the pastor of a missional expression of microchurches based in South Knoxville called Commonwealth. Uh, they are a community that is very like-minded to us here at Hope, and Aaron uh, has been someone that has blessed me so much over the last couple of years with his wisdom and his experience uh, and just the way he lives his life in accordance to the life and teachings of Jesus. I asked him specifically to come talk about this topic of incarnation as we're working through this series on heaven and earth. The incarnation of Jesus and how we live accordingly is so important uh, to understanding God's work in this world. And there is no one that I, who I think that lives this out better than Aaron and his family. And he is constantly coaching others to do the same. So I am super excited for you to be able to hear a little bit of his story and his heart and to hear him to talk about Jesus. Uh, strap in, it's gonna be great. I hope you enjoy it. And Aaron, thank you so much uh, for bringing this word to our community. So this is really fun for me uh, because this has been a long time coming. Like I have heard a number of your names and some of your stories uh, over the course of the last couple of years. And now I'm getting to kind of get to put faces with names and get to see for the first time uh, just a glimpse of what God is up to in this community and to get to meet you. Uh, Charlie and I met uh, at least a couple of years ago uh, through a mutual friend who knew what we were up to in South Knoxville and knew what you guys were up to in North Knoxville and essentially just said, like, you guys, you guys need to meet um, because God has put a very similar heartbeat and calling on both of your lives and on your communities. And so we did. I, th I think we grabbed coffee uh, the first time and just immediately hit it off. And over the last two, three years, have continued to, to get together and to meet really with no other agenda other than to just to be together, to, to hear what God's up to, to hear what challenges we're processing through in that particular season, and really just kind of support one another and spur one another towards towards love and good deeds in our respective parts of our city. So so it's really fun to finally be in the room uh, with some of you and, and even getting to share online with others who aren't, aren't here with us this morning. Uh, it's a great, great honor. And I know, you know, we don't really know one another, and I think that there's always some value when a stranger gets up in the room to share, uh, to hear a little bit about them and where they come from and why they're sharing what they're sharing. And my wife, Megan, and I, uh, we've been married for just about 19 years. Uh, we met uh, our freshman year of college while I was at the University of Nebraska, skipping class, playing sand volleyball, you know, the, uh, the old-fashioned way. Um, and then we've got three kids. We've got two middle school daughters, uh, our oldest, Paige, who's about to move on to high school, which is crazy, uh, her, her sister, Chloe, and then we've got our youngest, Jackson, and he's in, in, uh, in elementary school. And I am, uh, believe it or not, a fourth-generation pastor, and <laughs> I don't even really know what that means. There are some that will suggest that uh, there's some extra measure of anointing that comes with that, but you're not going to have to know me very long to, to think, uh, yeah, I don't think that's it. <laughs> I don't think that's it. I'm a painfully ordinary guy uh, who's desperately in need of grace all the time. 
And ironically, being a pastor is one thing I said I would never be. Because, uh, you know, there's some, some really beautiful parts about being in vocational ministry, but there's some really hard parts too. And being a PK, a pastor's kid, you know, you kind of grow up kind of peeking behind the curtains of vocational ministry, like, like really, really close. And one of the things about vocational ministry is sometimes, you know, you get like a front row seat to some of the best of humanity. I mean, you really do. You get to see God change lives and, and do things that are unexplainable apart from Jesus. And you get to be there for really cool moments in people's lives. But at other times, you also get a front row seat at times to the worst of humanity. And because people are broken and they are sinful and we are all in need of grace and left to ourselves, we don't typically do very well. And that is, that shows up in the pulpit as well and in spiritual leadership, unfortunately. And that's part of my story is uh, the church that I grew up in and came to know Jesus personally. And uh, we had an abusive pastor that came in and became a part of our church. And I watched as he destroyed the community that I grew up in. And I watched as what I thought were lifelong friends turn on one another, split our church in two, resulted in the displacement of my family when I was in middle school. And so I thought, you know what, if this is what Christianity is, if this is what the church is, like I don't want anything to do with any of it. Um, But I can never fully shake Jesus. There's always something about Jesus that stuck with me. Uh, and to this day, I remain just fascinated by him. I can't, I can't shake him. But coming around on organized religion, however, and the local church would take a lot longer. Now, when I was in college, something happened that would change the course of my life forever. I have a younger sister named Rachel. And when I was in college, she was struggling with addiction to meth. And it got really, really ugly. And we watched as the drug... Uh, just began to destroy her body. We watched as she withered away in front of us. Um, she was on the run. Uh, she became pregnant when she was 16 by her dealer. And for a long time, we couldn't find her. We wondered f- for quite some time whether we would get a phone call one day that her body had been found. But through lots of prayer and lots of grace, she eventually found her way into a rehab program. And part of this rehab program required our family to be on site with her uh, for some of the journey. And while we were there, we met all these people from all walks of life, um, beautiful people, but hurting people who all shared one thing in common, and that was their struggle with addiction to meth. And while we were there, we learned a couple things about these people that we had just grown to love so deeply. One that when it comes to meth addiction, the recovery rate is less than 5%. And so we knew if God didn't do a miraculous work in the lives of these people, there was little to no hope for them, right? They were going to die of their addiction if God did not intervene. And the second thing that we learned about most of the people in the program is that the vast majority of them were going to be moving back to Lincoln, Nebraska, which is where we lived, And as we began to think about kind of the church landscape in our city at that time, we could not imagine a church, uh, we didn't know of any, where we would feel comfortable inviting these raw, unedited, hurting people into, right? Because we have been a part of 
some churches. Uh, my dad um, at the time worked for a upper middle class white suburban church. And when we began to imagine inviting these people to this church, we knew it wasn't going to go well. You know, like the moment they come walking in, some of these people covered in tattoos, uh, smoking outside the front door every 15 minutes using very colorful, non-churchy language, we knew that even if nobody said a word to these people, the message would be clear that you don't belong here, right? You are not welcome. And to tell you the truth, like we, my family, we never really recovered from that. And so my dad left his job. We jumped in and together we, we started a church with and for uh, these people. And it was the wildest thing I've ever been a part of. We planted the church in downtown Lincoln, and you had the University of Nebraska uh, down the street one way, and you had the homeless shelter just down the street the other way. And so we were a church primarily of, primarily of college kids and homeless people, and it was, it was a mess. I've got so many stories I could tell you about fist fights breaking out during worship, uh, guys stealing bottles of liquor from behind the bar and passing out during church. Uh, being heckled, you know, during some of my first sermons. <laughs> and I mean, it was, it, was, it was a mess. But then we began watching Jesus work, and it was a beautiful mess. We began to watch as, as dozens of college kids began to bump into Jesus and to surrender their lives into his hands and begin to passionately following after him. Right? We watched as people began to be freed of addiction that we know statistically should not happen. Right? It, it, statistically, it's, it's, it's almost impossible. And yet here is God doing this in our midst. You know, I began to watch as some of the people in our community began to, to walk alongside these people who, who were homeless and living at the shelter, some of them living on the street. And we watched as, as people began to adopt some of these people and help them find their own place and teach them life skills. And some of the business owners that were part of our church began to employ some of them and, and really help them begin to put their life together. And it was incredible. And I think, I think this. I think for the first time in my life, I caught a glimpse, and just a glimpse, <laughs> of what ha- can happen. Like what the church can be. When it's committed less to, to, to religious traditions or to simply worshiping Jesus or being fanboys of Jesus and actually commit to loving people and living in the way of Jesus, right? To let the rhythms of Jesus and the practices of Jesus begin to shape everything that we do. And on the other side of that, I thought, what else in the world can I possibly give my life to? So on that note, uh, one of the things that uh, Charlie asked me to come share about is this, what I just shared, like really encapsulated in a word, and it's the word incarnation. And it's, uh, I think the incarnation is one of the most profound truths in the Bible. And yet somehow in the Western evangelical church, we we miss it, or at the very least, we miss like the radical, beautiful, powerful implications of the incarnation. And on that note, so here's, here's kind of 10,000 foot view, John 1.14, huge passage for us on this note. Uh, and this is, this is what we read in John 1.14. We read that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And I love the way that Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. He says this. He says, the word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Like, I love that. 
Uh, Michael Frost, uh, author uh, and scholar, says this. He says, the core idea of the Christian faith is the incarnation. That God took on flesh and he dwelt among us. To other religions, such an idea is considered odd or worse, inconceivable, or even worse, blasphemous. Right? And so the incarnation is, think about the seminal truth, which means, right, if we think about this, like if Jesus was not God, like all of this is for nothing. You know what I mean? Like we should just pack it up. We can keep the humanitarian stuff going, you know what I mean? And study the Bible in like a historical, conscious kind of way. But we should like close down hope. We'll close down Commonwealth, which is a community I passed in South Knoxville, because there's, there's really nothing to it. It's a waste of time. Like we know historically that religion, you can kind of take or leave. But religion can produce some of the best and some of the worst of humanity. But man, if Jesus was God... Uh, God incarnate, God with flesh on, like the kingdom being fleshed out in our midst, a picture of what it means to be fully human, like in the way that God intended it, then that changes absolutely everything. Like everything hinges on, on that truth. That's how important it is. Here's the problem though. Uh, when it comes to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, like in the West, for whatever reason, in this historical moment and the decades leading up to it, when it comes to the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, we tend to just get two of those and all but miss the third one. So I want to put some flesh on this just to give you an idea of what I mean. So if we were to do like kind of zoom out 10,000 foot picture of like the narrative of scripture and the way the gospel tends to get framed, um, you're going to have to pardon my artwork, but we'll just roll with it here. So right in the beginning, God does what? In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, right? It's like this incredible moment where God and man walk together in the cool of the day. They enjoy unbroken uh, covenant relationship. Uh, we're entrusted to steward all of creation. And we do it in this beautiful, loving relationship with our creator. Oh, how did Adam and Eve do with that one? <laughs> Not a trick question, I promise. Not so good, right? Um, they ultimately choose what we all choose uh, on certain days. And they choose to, they choose to rebel against God. Uh, they long to be autonomous selves and to be like God. And so sin enters in the human story and then all the brokenness that comes with it, right? Death, poverty, injustice, suffering, abuse, all of these things. War, all these things that don't reflect the heart of God. God never intended. Um, Fortunately, right, God does not let that be the end of the story. He's determined uh, to not let that be the end of the story. So uh, he ends up choosing a people for himself, right? Um, by no earnings of their own. Uh, they don't deserve it. God just chooses to do it because he longs for there to be, for Abraham, for Moses, and the people of Israel, this people that really reflect the heart of God, right? As we're trying to define divinity and empires are warring for land and people are killing one another, he calls out this people to say, just as Charlie talked about last week, or last week, right? Like, to be a reflection of his image, to be a light into the nations. How does that go? Good? <laughs> Not so good, right? In the old English... They suck at this. And it's like thousands of years of like this cycle of God calling them out to more, them ultimately rebelling and failing, them having to deal with the consequences of their sin, eventually crying out to God for mercy, 
God gives them in his loving kindness mercy. And then he calls them to more again and it's failure after failure until Judges, which is like the toilet bowl of the Bible, the worst of humanity and the rejection of him. Fortunately, though, right, the prophets speak of through this people, there's going to be this seed of David, right? This Messiah figure is going to come and usher in the kingdom, the kingdom of God on earth. Of course, we know that, right? Jesus comes to earth, which we celebrate uh, in December. And then uh, he ultimately goes to the cross, right? Takes the worst of humanity on himself, um, makes it possible for us to be reconciled to God. And through him, we're told God is reconciling all of it back, right? God wants every square inch of creation back. Uh, kingdom's coming in its fullness. Ultimately, he ascends. And now, uh, we're in this period, right, of uh, waiting. It's supposed to be a, a crown. <laughs> like I said, looks like an upside-down cow udder. But, um, but ultimately, we're waiting for him to come, right, for the kingdom to come in its fullness. And, and so this is the way, oftentimes, right, the kind of the narrative, uh, the gospel gets framed. So... If we're talking about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus in particular, like, do you see anything missing there? Talking about incarnation. I know I'm putting you on the spot. Sorry. How about everything that goes right there? Right, the entire life of Jesus. Every word that he spoke, every interaction that he had, every miracle he performed, every disciple he called, every person that he confronted, every person that he lifted up, uh, all of it is gone, right? We skip right over it like it doesn't even exist. In fact, if you just look at like the Apostles' Creed, the life and ministry of Jesus is reduced to a comma, right? And so I, I look at this, I'm like, well, it's no wonder that so many evangelicals and leaders look nothing like Jesus because we'll accept him as Savior and believe in him, We'll pray to him, we'll sing songs to him, we'll be fanboys of Jesus. But for whatever reason, in this particular point in human history, we have ventured from really prioritizing his life um, and looking at the way that he did things as if it doesn't really matter. But of course, the Gospels and the writers go to such great lengths to give us so many details about the way that he interacted in the world. And there's a reason for that. The reason is that it, it matters. Um, it matters a, a ton. And so in all of that, I just say, as we talk about incarnation, like we need to recapture the importance, the power, the mystery of the, of the reincarnation because how Jesus lives matters, right? And, and so one of the passages that's big for us, right? And so we know like at the end, Jesus speaks these words. So this is John 20, 21. This is, so this is, this is at the end, uh, hugely important for us as we talk about this. Jesus is preparing to go, right? So this is on, he's coming, he's coming right up to the end. Like we would say, this is probably right here. And Jesus says this to those who follow after him. He says, just as the Father has sent me, so now I'm sending you. Right, in the same way the Father sent me, the same posture, the same rhythms, the same way, uh, I'm gonna send you, right? And it's important to note, like this is after everything. This is after the miracles, the sermons, the calling of disciples, the teachable moments along the way, after all of that. Then at the end, Jesus is like, all right, you've watched how I've done it. You've seen the way that I do this, the way that I've walked, the way that I've loved, who I've confronted, like who, what, I, what I've said. Now go and do likewise, right? And so we have in those words, just as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you, ultimately the culmination of Jesus' ministry, right? Michael Frost calls it the crescendo of everything that Jesus has come to, to say and to do. So hear me on this. If I get anything through our heads this morning, I pray that it would just, I pray this like wakes you up at night and messes with you. <laughs> Is that 
man, Jesus, one of the things that we find in, in his life ministry in passages like this and the way he, he commissions us out at the end is that Jesus didn't just come to die. But he also came to show us how to live. Right? He came to show us like what it looks like to live in rhythm of the Father, like the rhythm of the kingdom um, in that way. And so he showed us a different kind of, of living altogether, really. And it's a very countercultural way. So what I want to do is put a little bit of flesh on this, right? This is why every moment matters and why the Gospels, we should just like marinate in them and deep soak in them all the time because there's so many things there for us. And so this is how it ends. And so I want to look at the way that it begins. It's kind of an illustration uh, of, of what this looks like. So how did Jesus begin his, his early, uh, begin his public ministry really altogether? And so I'm going to look at John 2. Going from John 20 all the way back to the beginning to John 2. And I love this passage for a lot of different reasons. Uh, and we can't even possibly scratch the surface on this. But that's what we're going to try to do is just scratch the surface and kind of get our heads around this, this idea. Because if the incarnation is not just an event but a way of life, then there's a lot for us here. So this is what we read. Uh, this is Jesus is just three days into his public ministry. So early on, he's just begun calling disciples to follow him. And this is what you find beginning in verse 1. On the third day, uh, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Now, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. All right, so I'm going to give us just a little bit of historical context so we can feel the weight of what's going on here. So in the first century, in Jesus' day, right, if you, uh, your wife was giving birth to a daughter as father, uh, the first thing that I would do is you would go over to your vat of like table wine, which is essentially what you would drink at every meal. It's kind of vinegary, tart stuff. Um, it was cleaner and healthier to drink than, than water. And you draw the barrel, like in remembrance of her birthday, in preparation for her wedding day. And you take that barrel, and you set it aside. And then every year on her birthday, this would be one of the things you did, again, in remembrance of her birth, and then in preparation for her wedding day, you draw off another barrel. And you'd do this every year until you had, you know, she was turned around 15, 16 years old, and then that was about time kids got married back then. How do you feel about that? <laughs> that's how dad is feeling too. No, no. But that's how it was back then, right? And so on the day of her wedding, what you do is, of course, you get this preparation, all these 15 barrels, and you'd hand out some glasses, you know, maybe to your, father, your inner circle of other fathers and men from the village. And, of course, we wouldn't start with the stuff that we just, we just corked, you know what I mean? That's vinegary, tart kind of thing, remember. Uh, no, we'd get the good stuff, right? So it's sitting there for aging for 15 years, and we'd pour a glass, and we'd all raise a glass, and somebody would toast to the father and say, well done, man. Like, you are an honorable man. You've prepared for 15 years for such a day as this. Uh, let's celebrate the birth of your daughter. You know, and then we'd start working our way through 15 barrels of wine. Um, and it was a multi-day you know, celebration. It was like a really big celebration. Most all of the village would be there. And you'd celebrate for days this, this union. But on this particular occasion, um, dad hasn't prepared well enough. And we don't know why. You know, it could have been they had seasons of drought. Family struggled financially. But for whatever reason, we know there's not enough. And so we wouldn't celebrate 
you've done a great job. How prepared are you? What kind of man are you? But rather, like, you didn't prepare well enough. And this is going to affect everybody. And we don't know where in the celebration this was, but likely for multiple days. Like, the, this celebration was going to be cut short. So, so Mary steps in, right? And another thing, I think, on a side note, especially as we're thinking about the heart of God and the way he chose to come to us, is like where this celebration is taking place, which is in Cana, which is not a particularly well-educated, like sophisticated place. Um, wasn't a particularly holy religious people either, right? Like if you had a son who really wanted to go into rabbinic study and he had, he had the smarts to do it and the desire to do it, like you'd ship him the relatives down south. He didn't do that in Galilee. Like that's just not the way it went. So, you have got quite the party going on in this particular moment. Like, kind of a down and dirty, rough neighborhood, lots of drinks being passed around, celebration of this, of this bride. And, and then Mary steps in. And Jesus says, uh, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. But his mother, for whatever reason, ignores Jesus in this moment and says to the servants, do whatever he tells you, right? And then something changes. Like, we don't know what, but something changes. Like, Jesus has been waiting to step into public ministry for 30 years. Of course, it's been a no all the way up until this point. So he assumes immediately, like, my hour's not going to come. It's not time. And yet something changes from his response to his mom to what happens next. And this is a bit of speculation, but, but something changed. Like at some point, like the father clues Jesus into, this is the moment. And I almost wonder if Jesus in that moment was like, knowing what he was going to live out, uh, knowing what the kingdom of God is, what the heart of God is, there's a part of me that wonders if Jesus wasn't like, of course this is it. <laughs> of course it would be at a wedding celebration for a couple of unnamed, ordinary newlyweds. And so he changes his tune, and we're told this. Nearby stood six stone water jars, big ones, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. I love that John fills that little, little detail in for us. All the way to the top. Then he told them, now draw out some water, take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn it out, they knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. That's in our sacred literature, just so you know. Uh, but you have saved the best until now, right? Uh, <laughs> I love this. For, for generations, for centuries, God's people have been waiting for this coming Messiah, waiting for the one who would bring the kingdom, right? Pleading with him through seasons of plenty, seasons of doubt, and Jesus chooses, God chooses for the moment that Jesus would step in, to step in with a moment of compassion, kindness, and extraordinary grace into the lives of a couple unnamed, ordinary newlyweds. And did you catch, by the, by the way, how much wine he cooked up? <laughs> like, more than enough. You know what I mean? Like, I think we could use the word extravagant here. Uh, <laughs> we're told six barrels each holding 30 gallons apiece. Uh, that's 180 gallons of wine. Roughly 908 bottles of wine for an already lubricated Galilean shindig, right? <laughs> um, 
It's crazy. Like, you start to get a feeling, like, and kind of an idea of, like, why the religious authorities, like, couldn't stand Jesus. You know, like, of course, they didn't like his, te- his teaching on grace. Uh, they didn't like how accessible he made God's forgiveness. He messed with their economical setup. They, they profited a lot from corrupt religion. And he's just out there giving it away. You know, like, it's just free. Uh, like, grace is always on tap, and you can come to the well anytime you want. But also, we find, like, Jesus was just liked a lot more than they are, you know? Um, They maintained this kind of distance, and yet, for whatever reason, like, notorious sinners, people who were on the outside, who organized religion had been told, they had told them their entire lives, you're not worthy, you don't belong, you're not holy enough. They loved to be with Jesus. And just as profound, Jesus seemed to really like being with them uh, as well. Um, every time the, the religious authorities are turning around, like he's, he's sharing a meal with the unmentionables, you know, or he's defending, uh, you know, a woman caught in adultery, which, interesting, the guy isn't there. Usually it takes two to do that. But he's gone, and he steps in to defend her, right? And every time they turn around, it's like he's, he's got a bucket of wings in one hand and a drink in the other, and he's telling jokes to prostitutes, and they're like, this cannot be God, <laughs> But one of the most incredible things about the incarnation is that is exactly what we're being told. Like, this is what the heart of God put on display with flesh on looks like. Like, these are the kinds of people that God prioritizes. These are the kinds of people he fights for and defends. Um, In fact, most of Jesus' words to those that we would name as, like, not the religious types, like, not walking the straight line. Like, Jesus tends to almost always respond with grace and compassion and kindness but those who thought they were holy, that thought that they were better than other people, that, that were over this whole corrupt religious system, almost all of his harsh words were for them, which, which should give us pause, I feel like. Like, as religious people in a religious space, at this moment doing religious things, uh, I think there's something profound for us there. Because Jesus didn't throw this out, but he also didn't ascribe it um, as much value as they did, right? He altogether, it seems like, redefined even what holiness looks like, right? Because in Jesus' day, when they're talking about, thinking about holiness, right? We know holy means set apart. That for them, holiness looked like disengagement, right? Distance between them and the world. Right, which is why they had no relationship with ordinary people. It's why they could even create a religious system where most people couldn't even afford to fully participate in the temple system. But Jesus comes, and we, if he's the son of God, that's what I'm saying here, like if he's the son of God, and he gets to define, God gets to define on his own terms, like what holiness looks like, he modeled something completely different. Uh, not this. Right? Jesus instead models a holiness that actually looks like radical engagement. Right? No distance between what God is up to and the world. Right? Entering into spaces that we would say traditionally are not sacred spaces, but Jesus makes them sacred. Not holy spaces, but Jesus makes them holy. Right? He completely flips this thing upside down. Right? Um, And in fact, even in this first miracle, like, he does something that is profoundly uh, I think some Christian circles would say it's blasphemous, but it's just in the text, right? I don't know if you remember, but remember where the, the wine came from? Like, what those vats were used for? 
30, 20, 30 gallons a piece. Like these were religious symbols, like used by like religious Jews for ceremonial washings. Right, so if I'm a good Jewish boy, man, um, any interaction that I have with a Gentile would essentially contaminate me. Right, so if I shook hands with a Gentile, contaminated. If I accidentally bump into a Gentile, I'm contaminated. If we do a business transaction, I'm contaminated. And I would then have to go to the priest, use this ceremonial washings, go through the ceremony, and essentially cleanse myself from, from the uncleanliness of bumping into these unholy people. And Jesus takes <laughs> that water to whip up a ton of wine for this wedding celebration. Right? And in so doing, like, there's this symbolic thing happening where he is taking these things that have been used to separate people, right? to essentially say there's holy people, unholy people. There's worthy people, there's unworthy people. There's loved people, there's unloved people. And he uses that to essentially destroy that, that whole space of separation. Right? And it's almost like he's saying, like, look, I'm going to begin my ministry the exact same way I'm going to continue my ministry. Right? And, and that is destroying these distinctions between the loved and the unloved, the black, the white, the religious, the irreligious, the holy, the unholy. Because now I'm taking them both and I'm putting them together. And I'm calling you not to a holiness that is disengaged from the brokenness of the world. But instead, just as the Father has sent me, so now I'm sending you. And holiness now is going to look like radical Radical engagement. So, uh, what are we looking at time here? Uh, 10.45? Okay. So in this, I would say, if we were to look at Jesus' holiness, and again, we're thinking through the lens of incarnation, what incarnation looks like. Like three words um, that I would say that I think do a good job of describing Jesus and what really sets him apart, not only from his religious peers when he walked the earth, but even from what we're watching, kind of the waters of culture kind of moving towards. All right, Jesus, I would say, actually, let's do this. Jesus uh, lived a life that I'd say embodied what it means to be fully human. Um, again, he, like God enters in, and for 30 years, we almost don't hear much about what life looked like. In fact, the only way we know what Jesus' life looked like is by studying the culture in which he walked, right? Because he was fully Jewish. He was fully man, also fully God. Think on that one for a while. Um, but he had Jewish peers. He went through the Jewish religious system. Like He grew up in his father's blue-collar trade. Like This is what God entering humanity looks like, which is pretty incredible. Um, he, is, he engaged the world around him, right? Um, again, he wasn't separated from it. Uh, he lived within that culture. He worked for redemption within that culture. Uh, and then he sent his disciples, sends us into that culture, um, engage with the people around him at all times. And then uh, another word for us to just sit on for a second is he's present. Like Jesus was present, fully present, like with those that he was around. Um, so let's just take a second here. Like as you think about just people like in your orbit currently, like people maybe your room with, maybe the people across the street, people you're in class with, people you work with, uh, and how they tend to interact with people in their orbit. Like, are these, would these three words be in the, the top five of how you would describe most of the people you know? Like, just curious. I can speak for me, but I can't speak for you. Um, 
I see head shaking. Yeah, I mean, speaking for myself, I would, I would say the same, the same thing. I, I think most people would say, I don't think that's really where we're headed or what I see modeled. Right, and I say that not because I'm smart, but you know, you just gotta read a handful of, of studies of what's just happening in modern Western culture. And you know, it's like, man, I know statistically that one of the most reported feelings of the average person in the US is chronic loneliness. Um, statistically, uh, most people say that are surveyed that they would not say that they have one close friend that they feel like they could call in the middle of the night if they needed to. A little different for those of us who are part of a community of faith, but this is normal for most people. Like, you know, I don't even have to, you don't have to look at social media, smartphone, screen time, uh, binge watching, binge drinking, or Tinder, or whatever else. You know what I mean? Like, like, just that alone tells me that most people, their experience, at least with the people around them, is not a fully embodied what it means to be human, fully engaged with the world around them, fully present with those they are with. But maybe, uh, actually, I think maybe some of us would even go as far to say that for many people, it's just the opposite. Right? That it's disembodied, disengaged, and just the opposite. Not presence, but absence. Um, I would suggest to you that is, generally speaking, for most people who don't enjoy what like we enjoy in a space like this, in a community like this, uh, what life looks for them. In fact, if we're talking about Jesus, if Jesus models what it looks like to be incarnate in a place, uh, what I would say the waters of modern culture where we are moving, it's just the opposite of that, what we might call excarnate. And what some scholars call, social um, commentators call, a defleshing of our faith and our, and our existence. So a couple of little just definitions of what I mean by this incarnate. It's what Jesus modeled for us, right? It's living fully, being fully present in the moment, fully tuned in to those we walk with, connected to uh, our physical locale, cultural dialed into our city, very connected with those around us. We're fully present, meaning physically present, mentally present, emotionally present, spiritually present, like we are here, like fully here. Like that would be incarnate. Excarnate, on the other hand, is just the opposite of that. Uh, it's not being present, not tuned in to, to those we are with, not connected to our physical locale, not culturally dialed into our city, uh, not connected to those around us, not fully present physically or mentally, emotionally or spiritually. Uh, that's excarnate, right? And so we can even see examples of this, like in just culture, right? So we're in kind of the Fourth and Gale kind of area, right? One of the first things my kids commented on when we walked up here is the front porch, right? It's like we get front porch envy every time we're, we're on the side of town, right? Uh, because we live in a neighborhood that came after this particular period of history. Like we used to build big front porches on houses and we used to live in a neighborhood. It was so great. Like after work, pop open a bottle of wine, sit on the front porch, and there's all these natural kind of unplanned connections that happen with neighbors who are doing the same, right? At some point, we moved the front porch to the backyard, surrounded by a six-foot privacy fence, right? And now, at least in the, the suburbs, uh, you know, the experience for many is you come home from work, click the button, garage door goes up, pull in, click the button, garage door goes down. Uh, we have a friend who's a part of our community, and 
And before kind of our process of unlearning and relearning together and studying the way of Jesus together, <laughs> she will admit that every day after work, she would pretend to be on her phone as she like walked out of the car and into her house <laughs> just so she didn't have to like interact with neighbors, right? Like a pretty extreme version of what excarnation looks like, but not an abnormal experience at all, right? And some of this like tech, of course, is a part of this, right? It used to be like for us to have a conversation, generally speaking, yeah, I could call you on the rotary phone, but generally speaking, like we're in person, right? Like face to face in the flesh, right? What we know now, especially about younger generations who are growing up with this little thing in their hands um, that we're, we're swapping out like physical fleshly relationships, uh, flesh on flesh relationships for digital ones, right? So my generation was Facebook. I know I'm aging myself, right? But whether it's Instagram, Snapchat or whatever, uh, it's very, very normal. You ever, um, you ever have somebody who calls you and you're kind of annoyed because uh, they didn't text and so you didn't answer and you text them back? <laughs> Guilty? Yeah. Yes, me too. Uh, ever find yourself like in a shopping mall or a restaurant or at a park or downtown and you see these kids that are clamoring for their parents' attention and mom or dad is right, just somewhere else on the phone? Uh, ever see that? Ever been that person? Yes, guilty, me too. Um, I remember going to a networking event for young professionals not all that long ago. The whole point was networking. <laughs> I walked into this really hipster bar in Lincoln, Nebraska, and I walked in, there's like 15 people there. Uh, two of them were at separate ends of the bar on their phones. The other 12 were on the circular couch. Nobody was talking to each other, everybody on their phone. Right? Like something, like there's a shift happening. Right? It's, it's like we, we think we can be everywhere at once and somehow we end up being nowhere most of the time. Right? Which if we compare that to the life of Jesus is something uh, very, very different altogether. Like even for communities of faith, like this has been a huge shift. Just in, I've been in ministry for uh, almost 20 years. The whole time we've been together, right around 20 years. And there's been such a huge shift just in like the 20 years I've been doing this thing. Right? Like COVID really accelerated it with this whole online church becoming like a regular everybody's doing it kind of a thing. And what's really interesting on the other side of it is how many people I'm connected to. And like, it used to be, right, like to be a part of the church, like we would have to be in a space like this, like interacting, talking, shaking hands, breaking bread, singing songs, which is beautiful, irreplaceable. Now more and more people are logging in from their living room and their underwear, you know what I mean, which I get is more convenient. Um, but you lose something in that, like something beautiful. Like it's certainly, I don't think you could describe it as incarnate. And it certainly feels and sounds and tastes and smells a lot more like this. Um, so all that to say, I could go on and on and on, but I'm going to spare you. I don't want to put you in a hostage situation this morning. But there are social commentaries who describe like if, and the most emblematic environment that describes like our culture at this particular moment. is the, uh, And Richard Sennett is one that writes a lot about this. He suggests that the primary architectural emblem of our cultural moment right now, contemporary life, is the airport departure lounge, right? Which, I don't know how much you love flying or sitting in those lounges, but they're horrible. <laughs> it's like, it's a kind of hell. Like, it's, it's, it's sterile. You know, he des- describes how it's sterile. It's isolating. Uh, it's fake. Like, it's all pretend, right? It's the reason we can get, like, Bubba Gump shrimp in North Dakota, you know what I mean? It's like, there's not a body of water for thousands of miles. Uh, so there's like this falsehood to it and nobody belongs there. Like everybody is going somewhere. Nobody's staying, right? One of the most interesting things about American culture, other people from other countries have written about this, 
is we're the only nation in the world where when you ask somebody what they do for work, they tend to frame it in a, well, currently I'm dot, 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 right? And like, almost like I'm passing through. Like, this is what I'm doing right now, but I'm not planning on doing this. And that is not to shame people who change careers or jobs, but it is a far cry from, from certain points in human history, including when Jesus walked the earth, when there was a craft, you know what I mean? And people of faith like approach that craft as this is, I'm going to do this to the glory of God, right? I'm going to do this in a way that worships him and honors him uh, and do it to the best of my ability as an act of worship, right? Again, it's another example of just this excarnating kind of place. Like this, is, this world is not my home. This city is not my home. This neighborhood is not my home. I'm just passing through it, which is very, very different. So uh, when I think about this, again, all of this, the whole point is just to keep coming back to the way of Jesus. Like, can you imagine Jesus like, like with you and constantly looking at his phone? <laughs> like, the lit, like how much or little you know about Jesus. Can you imagine that reality? Or like him rushing constantly every day, meeting to meeting, or like looking over your shoulder as you're in conversation for maybe somebody more important or more interesting to talk to. Um, I think most of us would say, no way. Like that is, that's the option that we see in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so I think we have to ask ourselves, like maybe, just maybe, did we miss the plot somewhere? Uh, and I think um, Jesus is inviting us in the incarnation to a completely different way to be human. A way that, as we were talking about, is going to be very, very uh, countercultural. And that's kind of part of the point, right? Um, yeah, I think I, I'm increasingly convinced that is part of the point of the incarnation, is showing us a different way to live that puts on display the heart of God. Uh, you know, the early followers of Jesus, they called themselves people of the way. Like, they didn't call themselves Christians, that came from outside. The people of the way, right? Uh, which the Mandalorian kind of like ruined for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? So great show, love it. You know, but one of the things they, they do in the Mandalorian, if you haven't seen it, I don't think this will be too much of a spoiler alert. Uh, but they, the Mandalorian have this way, this way that they live, this kind of honor code by which they conduct themselves. And one of the cool things is there's not very many of them left. They're kind of like this remnant kind of community. And the way that they live is certainly countercultural uh, to the world around them. And they're constantly like encouraging one another and reaffirming for one another, like this is the way. And the other one will repeat, this is the way. You know, and I think like that for me highlights like the beauty, the power, and the necessity of like a community like this. Uh, because all the cultural stuff is always gonna be pulling us towards this, right? And so for one another, we gotta constantly be encouraging and affirming one another, especially knowing how tough it is to live on mission, right? And so, like, we are very much a, a missional work in South Knoxville. You guys are very much a missional work in, in North Knoxville and around. And you know, like, living on mission, I've described it as, it's like bleeding out for other people constantly. <laughs> it's like just constantly picking up that cross and just as Jesus did and showed us and incarnated for us uh, on the cross, it's like it's laying down our lives all the time for people who don't deserve it, right? And, and not to get something in return, not to get a little notch on our belt or a jewel in our crown or whatever, just to love the people in front of us because this is the way, right? To which you say, this is the way. <laughs> this is the way. I didn't plan that. That felt really good though. Um, so... You know, so I was, just, I was just sitting on this and just thinking, you know, just, just the way that this butts up against the, 
the cultural moment in which we find ourselves. And I was just thinking, you know, one, like we have to constantly be doing this for one another, right? Committed, for example, and these are things, just examples pulled out from the life of Jesus. Committed to not living a life marked by self-protection, but rather one marked by self-sacrificial love, right? Because this is the way. Uh, encouraging one another, spurring one another on towards love and good needs. Recognizing that together that our dinner tables have the potential to be a far more transformational ministry tool than any pulpit ever will be, right? Because that's what Jesus shows us, right? In the incarnation of this is, this is the way. Uh, recognizing together with one another, reminding one another that your neighborhood is holy ground, right? Because this is the way, right? Holiness is bleeding into, into every day in the way of Jesus. Um, recognizing that our neighbors, uh, yes, even those neighbors, <laughs> are people that that are beloved by God and, and who Jesus thought worth dying for uh, because this is, this is the way. Recognizing, I just saw in your literature, and I had in my notes as well, recognizing that beggar is not necessarily better, nor is it uh, evidence of God's blessing, but that oftentimes some of God's most beautiful, powerful, transformational work is in those small, everyday moments that don't come with fanfare, that don't increase your platform, that nobody applauds you for, that doesn't get posted on social media. It's just a need, opportunity to show compassion. So that's what we see in the life of Jesus. This is the way, right? To be a people who are encouraging and modeling for one another that nothing that we own is ours, right? It's to be stewarded and to be given away and shared, including our, our very lives, because this is the way. Uh, being a people who refuse to ignore injustice, right? Or turn a blind eye to the oppressed, because... God is up to something in human history. Jesus shows us uh, that those people matter deeply to God, something that is very consistent with the rest of the scriptures, uh, because this is the way. And recognizing, I would say, that nothing is so small that it can't be rendered as worship. You know what I mean? Um, even in the church world, this is countercultural. And yet, gosh, I dream. I, I so badly want to see multiple movements in our city of people who are not just building their big thing and doing the hype church thing and hashtagging all their stuff. It's like, you know, invite people to this thing. I'm all for inviting people to church, but uh, there's so many other beautiful moments to participate in what God's doing in the world. And so many, if we're looking at the incarnation, so many of Jesus' most powerful transformational moments that we continue to talk about and study seem to be nothing more than interruptions. And it often wasn't to the crowds. Right? It's like him being confronted with a need and an opportunity to step in with the grace of God and love the person in front of their face. Right? Because, because this is the way. So all that to say, I could keep going, but I'm not going to. Um, and that may sound like a lot, but here's what I would say. The fun part about all of this is there's not really a blueprint for it. You know what I mean? Like when we study Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, the epistles, there's not a blueprint for what the church has to look like or any of our lives. And so there's like this infinite amount of creativity and room for improvising and spontaneity depending on what God puts in front of your face. So this is going to look a thousand different ways for a thousand different people in a thousand different contexts in the midst of a thousand different churches. And that's part of the beauty of it. But the one thing we have to come back to is immersing ourselves in the person of Jesus and in the way of Jesus. And to encourage you, I would just say, if you do that, you can try, fail, fall on your face, do anything, but you're going to be good. You're going <laughs> to be in good hands, and the Spirit of God is going to do some beautiful, beautiful things uh, in your midst. So this is your calling and mine. 
this is your invitation, and uh, this is your destiny too. And so I'm just a brother from another mother from across the river who gets to encourage you in that and affirm that everything you guys are doing uh, together is beautiful and it's worthy and it's kingdom and we're cheering you on. Can I pray for you? Lord God, I thank you so much for this community people. I thank you for uh, the calling that you put on Charlie's life, Nicole. I thank you for the men and women that you've raised up around them. And I thank you for what you've begun in North Knoxville. And I truly believe it is just beginning. Lord God, we ask that you would continue to raise up laborers because the fields are ripe. I ask, Lord God, for those in the room or listening to this, Lord, that you would align their hearts with yours, that you'd give them eyes to see all of these beautiful opportunities that are all around them and all these beautiful people that are all around them who've been created in your image, Lord, who you have placed around them for a purpose. I ask that you would give us hearts that break for the things that break your heart, that you'd give us passion for the things you're passionate about, and that you would give us the courage to step in with love and with grace as you lead us. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in your great name and all God's people said, amen. Amen.